0: We spoke a little bit this morning about uh, investigation or inquiry that quality of not just meeting our experience, or in what's becoming the sort of everyday cultural parlance, being mindful of experience, being present with or present in experience, but then that added component of actually exploring what's happening, that relationship that's there between investigation and insight, exploring and understanding. So I thought I'd offer some reflections this evening that unpack a little bit this quality of investigation, exploration. A few things, the first is that really the condition we, sp- we spoke about this this morning, but the the foundational condition for really investigating experience is um, presence, that you're predominantly an embodied presence, visceral presence, inhabit what we've called inhabiting presence as well. That most essentially what you're doing is you're feeling into what's happening in order to find out about what's happening. and You're leading with the feeling into so that the finding out can arise rather than leading with the finding out. Mm. A lot of the words that we have Sound like kind of mental or cognitive type words. So, investigation. Hmm. Sounds like a case for Sherlock Holmes. You know, I think of that as being something to think a lot about, investigate. Um, you know, sometimes I'll encourage people yeah, about being curious. But again, curiosity can sound like a kind of mental quality to be curious, wondering about things, wondering, what's this, what's that? And so what we're pointing to when we're speaking about investigation or inquiry or exploring experience is a kind of kinesthetic curiosity. That sense that we were speaking about leading with awareness and letting the reflective process... Follow behind that. If awareness is leading, clarity of thought can easily follow. Whereas, if the reflective process—what's happening, what's going on, what does this mean—if that gets out in front, awareness all get gets left behind, and then we are just thinking about experience. Nothing wrong with that, but you've already spent a few decades just thinking about experience. So we're engaging this wonderful quality of thought, reflective power. Right? We're engaging it in a more full spectrum way. We're not just thinking about, we're engaging it, you know, within the foundation of presence. Feeling into, giving space to, listening deeply to experience. That's another feature then. Of uh, investigation or inquiry, that quality of listening. You're listening deeply to what's happening rather than just trying to get an answer for what's happening. And listening deeply um, suggests a certain quality of kind of patience, interest. You know. So that's the first thing, that sense of leading with awareness, and that leads then into that second, they say about listening deeply, that real inquiry, investigation, curiosity, exploration is sort of open-ended. It doesn't have a view of what I should find out. It doesn't have a view of what should happen. The most common view we have about what should happen when we start exploring experiences oh, what's happening here and if I understand then ta-da you know there'll be some shift if I can find out why my shoulders are so painful then ah they won't be painful anymore and the tricky thing is that that's kind of true right it's kind of true. Insight is affective. It makes a difference. Right? When you understand something deeply, oh, it makes a difference. It's not just a cognitive. It's not just, oh yes, that's true, that's good. Right? No, it makes a difference. It makes three particular kinds of difference, actually, which I'll speak about in a moment. But in order for that understanding to really make a difference, you have to actually put aside your sense of what you want to happen, what you think could happen, what you think should happen. So actually then to really find out what can happen. When you see deeply into your experience, when you understand something, whether about your personal experience, psychological experience, historical experience, or whether about the nature of experience itself. And I'll give some examples of, of those different types of inquiries. So then the three ways that it makes a difference, right, the three, we could call these the three hallmarks of insight. And when I say them like that, it sounds like, Sounds good, doesn't it? Three hallmarks of insight, you know. It sounds like that must be some venerab- from, from venerable from some venerable Buddhist list. But actually, I just thought about it on the stairs, walking down <laughs> here. I feel I was just thinking, oh, talk about inquiry and insight, and then yeah, what's what? You know, when we say insight, what do we really mean? And then I thought, oh, yeah, there's three things. So here we go: the three hallmarks of insight for the first time ever. And they kind of correspond actually to a kind of to body heart and mind. there's a kind of to a physical real visceral response to insight, an emotional heart response to insight, and then a kind of cognitive or wisdom response to insight so the f- the, the first hallmark is. When you really see something clearly, when you understand something, not just about the nature of experience or about how you've been in some problematic or difficult relationship to experience, how you've been stuck in some fixed view or how you've been caught in some defensiveness or how you've been seduced in some familiar way by a particular belief or a particular compulsion or a particular fear or whatever it might be. You really see through that, it's relaxing, it's relieving. There's a visceral response to real understanding that one is freed from the pattern or the compulsion or the defense or whatever it was. And one can taste, in the moment of the insight, one tastes That freedom, that liberation, that unwinding, that relaxing, that relieving. Very, very important part of, of transformational practice that it makes a difference physically, energetically. And sometimes I think relaxation is underestimated. In meditation practice. I sometimes hear meditation teachers almost defensively saying, you know, meditation's about much more than just relaxation. And I think, well, <laughs> you know, actually it's a really, really a lot about relaxation. Insight is relieving, relaxing. No, the very word nibbana, in Pali or Nirvana in uh, Sanskrit that's used it actually literally means cooling or extinguishing it comes, the etymological root of it is to put out a fire and that sense of that which has been tight is loosened that which is hot gets cooled that which is tight Relaxes. We can we find the authenticity of our insight in the fact that it makes a relieving difference, relaxing difference. Then the second hallmark is the change in the heart's relationship to it. Ah, oh, this space around the pattern. There's a kind of ease with the pattern. There's um, gentleness with the pattern. Oh, one sort of, in the moment of seeing that thing I've been caught up in for the last decades, maybe, there's like a, a simultaneous sort of forgiveness of oneself. Oh, you know that line in the Lord's Prayer about forgive us our trespasses. I don't. I've never really um, had very much resonance or affinity with the language of Christianity, particularly. But that line, "Forgive us our trespasses," that's what happens in insight. Is one feels one's trespasses is are forgiven somehow. Or another way of saying that, one could feel in the moment of seeing you forgive yourself your trespasses. You put down the burden of me and my struggle and my problem and my issue and my attempt and my trying and my practice and my, my, my oh my, Oh. the heart knows its unburdening that's another way insight makes a difference and then the third uh, hallmark of insight is the cognitive difference the quality of clarity of seeing clearly one knows oh that's been seen <coughs> it's not in the realm of a good idea it's not something that to agree with or not agree with and sometimes we wonder, well, is that an insight? Is that true or is that not true? Maybe it's like that or maybe it's not like that. No, that's not an insight. <laughs> insight is, is a kind of unshakable clarity. One knows in the moment of seeing that one is seeing something more truly, more clearly, more deeply. Somebody once asked the Buddha, you know, how? What's, what's what's the clear seeing? Vipassana, this practice we're doing is often called vipassana. Vipassana literally means insight, clear seeing. Vipassana to see clearly into, to see into the nature of experience. And the Buddha, someone asked the Buddha, then, so what's what does that mean? The, what's the clear seeing of insight? An example, the Buddha says. He says, one sees, one sees what's happening as clearly as one sees that one's en- hand is on the end of one's arm. It doesn't need to be a matter for debate. You know, it's clear, obvious. He says one sees what the nature of experience as clearly as, one s- as somebody with good eyesight sees colour. One knows in the moment of seeing, oh yes, it's like this. It's like this. So this is this is a little bit how insight functions, and I'm sure that um, some of you, many of you, recognise those you know, those liberating characteristics. Right where there's been moments important moments in your own practice important moments in your life important moments in your meditation important moments that may have happened in another context you know but where there's when one realizes ah oh, and the realizing makes a difference makes a relieving difference makes a forgiving difference makes a clear difference that's the whole point of insight right? to relieve our tension to unburden our heart to clarify the mind to be able to respond to the stuff of life you know, more freely and fluidly more wisely and kindly so then the kind of mechanisms of inquiry, like we said, led with presence and putting aside ideas about what I th- think I already know about what this is, whatever the this is, and then really being willing to listen. And I think listen is a more helpful a- a verb here than look. Because the looking can get a little cognitive. The looking can get a little top-down. Oh, I'm looking at my experience, right, what's happening here? You know? And at least for me, you have to see for yourself, but at least for me, that sense of listening gives a more uh, nuanced or more full a more embodied sense of contact. Feeling into, another way of saying that. So then what are, what are you listening to? What are you feeling into? What are these uh, patterns or tensions or uh, issues that might need investigating? Well, some of it is the kind of the stuff of our, psych- our personal lives, we might say personal experience, psychological, emotional experience. The, s- the, s- the stuff that in everyday language we call my patterns. Know. And of course, just by engaging in a practice which is where we keep invoking just presence and simplicity, breath and belly. You know, by invoking that, we also inevitably evoke all the other stuff that we do. The very, um, the very uh, exercise, if you like, of just keeping bringing your attention to breathing and to belly, that becomes like a mirror that shows you everywhere else that your attention goes. And where are all these other places your attention goes, like we've already said, to your habits. And habits of mind, patterns of mind, and the familiar Emotional loops, familiar psychological loops, a familiar kind of storytelling that we do. And that those familiar loops can overlay themselves onto anything. Like somebody was speaking this morning about the atmosphere in the hall. And how what we perceive as the atmosphere is, you know, to some great extent what we overlay what we think we already know about that. And same thing, you know, you walk outside here and look at people doing walking meditation. There's a lot you could see when you look at a lawn full of people doing walking meditation. You, know, you could see kind of a lot of zombie-like uh, figures you know, you could see people who look like they've been sedated with or against their will, we don't know, <laughs> you know. or you could see people doing this kind of beautiful, peaceful, spiritual practice you could people see people being sincere you could see people expressing peace you could see people walking sensitively on the earth or you could see people being miserable, people being dull-minded, etc., etc. There may be some clear perception in there, maybe, but there might also just be the overlay. So wherever our mind's going, wherever our attention's going, we have an opportunity to see our overlays, our patterns, the stories we tell ourselves about what's happening, out there in the world what's happening around us what's happening with the person next to us it's interesting how much information we can build up about the person in front of us you know. you might imagine you know, all this kind of stuff about people sitting near us or people that look particularly interesting to us on the retreat or people who look particularly attractive to us Or the person who particularly pisses us off. (laughs) Through no fault of their own, but I just don't like the way they leave their shoes outside the meditation (laughs) or whatever. There's a term for that in the Dharma scene. Or the person we fixate on. The Vipassana romance, it's called. Or the person that we get particularly uh, upset with called the Vipassana Vendetta. <laughs> so whatever we think we're seeing around us, whatever we think is going on with the people around us, whatever we think is going on with the general atmosphere, whatever we think is going on with J- Gaia House, whatever we think is going on in the world, right, there, it's not to deny that there may be c- some clear perception there, but a lot of what we're looking at is our own mind. Our own rhetoric, our own commentary, our own analysis, our own meaning-making. And that's one of the things we can start to really inquire into, right? Just feeling into, listening to, recognizing our rhetoric as rhetoric. So what I tell myself about what's happening out there on the lawn is just what I'm telling myself about it might be quite liberating to, ju- to actually keep looking to look through the, the layer or the veil of my own rhetoric right? inquiry that allows me to see my meaning making as just that as my meaning making and also and more crucially even the meaning making we do about our own inner experience Sitting here, right, with body like this, comfortable or uncomfortable, with heart like this, experiencing different emotional states, feeling glad, sometimes peaceful, inspired, and then other times feeling discouraged or confused or dull, feeling restless and then feeling peaceful. You know, all of these are just common human experiences. We all sit here and we get to know and taste these emotional states. Right? That's why I can even say those words, feeling peaceful or feeling confused, feeling inspired, feeling discouraged. And you know what I mean when I say those. So we sit here with the material of experience and there, but how easily we do a lot of meaning-making around that. Right? so maybe we're tired maybe there's some physical discomfort maybe it's getting late in the day and maybe your one's a little hypoglycemic it's been a long time since supper and then you know the various factors internal factors, external factors contributing factors mean that I feel a bit discouraged day feels long he's still chatting up front Oh, there's going to be another sitting after this one. (laughs) You know? Just, why not? not? You know, feel a little discouraged. But how easily we latch on to that discouragement and do a lot of meaning-making. The first meaning we're making, we just listen to it as if it's true, right? Rather than seeing, oh, oh, inquiry, investigation, listening to experience, just notices discouragement come up. Oh, that's interesting, and then notices the the way sort of like a fo- like fog, discouragement sort of creeps over the landscape of the mind, right? and you keep listening to experience. You know, well this fog will blow through, right? That's what weather does. You know, emotional states are like the weather of consciousness. And you can listen to that and get to know it. You can get to know these different emotional states, then one's less fooled by them. You can get to know discouragement; you can welcome it, be interested in it, right? get familiar with it. But unfortunately, that's not what we do much of the time. We jump on it, Oh, and we don't say, "Here is discouragement, like fog entering into consciousness." No, we say, "I'm discouraged." And then we follow up with, you know, why am I here and how long is it going to last and, you know, all the things I could have done this week instead, and <laughs> da, 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 the full catastrophe. You know? So if there's, no, if there's no curiosity, exploration, investigation, inquiry, deep listening, then we're much more likely to just jump on our thoughts and mind states, believe our thoughts and mind states, ride off into the sunset on our thoughts and mind states. So we can use the mirror of our practice, the intention to be just present with breath and body, to see all the other places mind goes, get familiar with, Listen to, not be fooled by, and the the patterns that tend to grab us the most strongly usually have a whole a history to them. You know, the patterning that we do, the tendency to um, get caught in anxiety, for example. Or the tendency to get caught in um, uh, a a certain kind of storytelling, a familiar kind of storytelling about the way the situation is, the way the world is, the way others are, the way I am. And that quality of inquiry then that listens, not just to the content of that storytelling, that meaning-making, but listens to the sort of familiarity, listens for the associations, the history, the memory, the imagery that might go with it. Sometimes very helpful as you listen to some familiar view. The object is new. Now the object's called Gaia house or meditation practice or the person who sits near me and keeps shuffling or whatever it is. But the, f- the type of story we're telling, it's not fair. For example, that's a story we like to tell, or, or whatever it might be. When the story's familiar, right, it's helpful sometimes to let the inquiry see, oh, where is it familiar from? Where are the situations in my life when I found myself telling this kind of story? Another interesting way to inquire is to, particularly when it's a very familiar pattern, how old do I feel? Often when one's telling a familiar story, uh, particularly when it's a deficient kind of a story, a story that there's something wrong, something wrong with the situation, or something wrong with ha- me, or something wrong with uh, what's happening, uh, there's a, one's actually feeling kind of small, deficient, young, Vulnerable, fearful. And because we don't like to feel those things, I don't want to feel vulnerable and fearful and young, so we push it away. And that's why it keeps coming back. Because what does something that feels young and vulnerable need? Not pushing away. Needs listening to, caring for, including. Including. So that sort of historical element to inquiry, the willingness and the capacity to listen, not just to what the story you're telling yourself now, but to listen to the kind of historical nuances of where this comes from, where this is familiar from, to listen to the the sort of self-sense that may well be young or small in some way. And then the particular meaning-making, the kind of, pretty much for everyone, the most intense of the psychological, emotional material that really needs our inquiry is the self-evaluation, the self-judgment, the shoulding on oneself, how I should be and how I shouldn't be. The kind of, isolation of the way we make you know our own exp- we kind of telling ourselves a story about how we are and who we are and how we shouldn't or couldn't or mustn't or something be like this and in one of the small groups today somebody said and it's very common in small group oh how relieving it is to hear the experience of other people in the group because until now having the impression it was just me was like this, just my crazy mind. And sit here, you know, giving oneself a hard time because of having a busy mind or having a restless body or whatever it is, as if everybody else has some kind of beatifically perfect mind. and. Blissful yoga magazine type meditation body. <laughs> no. And the, the harshness with which we, you know, that can become not just a, a kind of a self narrative but a self attack. The example I give sometimes, you know, in a situation like this imagine if at the end of the retreat you were to turn to the person next to you and say well your meditation seemed rubbish <laughs> you didn't seem very mindful at all <laughs> no. it's a waste of time you even coming this week <laughs> <laughs> you can't imagine you can't imagine, there's no way we would dare we couldn't conceive of speaking to anybody in the room like that except one person One'self. How might you, even those last two days, have said exactly that kind of thing to oneself? Oh, bloody bloody you sorry? come on, you! know. <laughs> telling oneself one, you know, just that tendency, basically, to give oneself a hard time. It has its opposite expression as well in a kind of inflation, inflatory self sense, you know, trying to big oneself up in various ways. But even that is based on the same kind of insecurity. So we try to big ourselves up, or we kind of, you know, painfully put ourselves down. And that's the, the such a core psychological structure that really needs to be exploded through inquiry no. it's not that it needs to be prettied up, it's not so much that you need to change the discourse from you're a terrible person to oh no, you're not quite a nice person really right? actually that whole, that whole structure just needs to be seen through and inquiry is a powerful way of looking into that there's actually there's many nuances to that Just holding one's experience more gently. Just having that sense of just allowing what's here. Allowing mind to be like this. Allowing body to be like this. That sense of no wrong experience. So that element of just being willing to disengage from judgment. When you recognize it as judgment... And as soon as it has a, you're so, or why can't you, or you shouldn't, or any of that tone, as soon as it's not just an evaluation of what's happening, that's fine, right? Oh, there's some spaciousness, or oh, there's some discomfort, or oh, there's some tension. That's fine, but when it's evaluating the self, oh, I'm so tense, oh, I shouldn't be like this, why can't I relax? As soon as there's an element of self-measurement, self-judgment, self-evaluation, that element of investigation, when you see the judgment, you drop it. Once you know that it's judgment, you don't even engage with whether it's true or not. You just drop it. You drop it, Buddha says, like a hot coal. You don't need to stop and think about whether you're going to drop a hot coal. because that's what self-attack, self-judgment is. It's a hot coal. So, there's a lot we could say about that. I teach week-long retreats just about engaging with, uh, just about recognizing and disengaging from self-judgment. Should I have a whole month-long online course just on that? So it feels a little challenging to fit it into the middle section of a sh- short talk. Mm-hmm. Right. But and you know we can we can explore it more in groups and in in the discussions in here. But for the purpose of just that sense of inquiry, just. Recognizing when the inner discourse is a judgmental discourse, a a self-measuring discourse, and dropping it. uh, That's actually where the investigation part can end. You don't need to figure out any more about it. Once you've seen that it's judgment, drop it. Drop it like a hot coal. So, this whole variety of psychological and emotional experience that we get to feel into, get familiar with, get more loose around, gain some independence from as we inquire into experience and then there's also a whole realm of experience for really investigating and inquiring into that isn't really personal experience at all it's not about me and my storytelling it's not about my history and my conditioning it's rather more elemental we might say or essential and sometimes there isn't much self discourse We've just, you know, actually already just left mind alone a little bit. So thinking may be going on, but I'm just not listening really. Not engaging. Letting thought be background like birds a background. And then we're kind of just listening to or feeling into or opening to the touch of experience itself. Whatever experience, sounds, sensations, emotional movements. And we're just what we're inquiring into is the naturally unfolding nature of our experience, the fluid nature, changing nature. Very, very important. I mean again and again. You know, there's some idea of kind of the second thing you ever learn about Buddhism is Oh, everything is changing and then we think oh yeah I know that now tell me something new right? but over 30 years of this practice the you know the countless times where I've had exactly the same insight oh yeah everything's changing right? you don't get to tick that insight off and move on to a better one <laughs> But you do get to listen again and again and again to your experience and have the fluidity of everything, the the naturally unfolding nature of things inform your understanding. When you listen to the fluidity of your sensations and of the sounds and of your thoughts and feelings and the way in which everything has its own intelligence, its own natural rhythm of unfolding then those hallmarks of insight arise. When you get to taste the fluidity of experience, you relax around it. You let your experience have its movement. Right? It unburdens the heart. You stop trying to control it all. You make room for what's happening. And there's that clarity of seeing. And clearly knows this fleeting moment, fragile moment, precious moment, unique moment, mysterious moment, timeless moment, infinite moment. And so sometimes, particularly when there isn't a lot of charge in the personal realm, when there isn't, you know, some intense psychological stuff or some intense emotional wave that needs attention, that needs inquiry, that needs investigation. And those moments are very helpful to, ju- to listen deeply just to the taste or flavour of the moments unfolding. It's changing nature. It's fluid nature. It's naturally unfolding nature. You also get to taste in those moments the tendency that we have to control, to manage, to organize, to manipulate experience. Mm, So many moments in meditation, now again we have this ideal of presence and ease and actually what we find is Know, pushing and pulling with experience. And it's it's totally normal as a human being to push and pull with experience. I mean, it doesn't have to be that way, right? That's why we're engaged in this kind of practice, to actually evolve beyond pushing and pulling with experience. Right? But in order to evolve beyond pushing and pulling, or another way, it's using these three hallmarks of insight, in order to relax around experience, to be tender with experience, and to clearly see the nature of experience, we need to inquire into our pulling and pushing. You need to listen to, to feel into, to sort of study, not as an idea, but in your experience to study the ways we get tight we get demanding we get defended we get compelled by what we want and get contracted around what we don't like and instead of judging that instead of getting into all the self measurement you get to study that you get to feel the way that compulsion and contraction hurts narrows things you fixated and then you get to study the way it's possible you know we get to find out how to be here in a way that's uncompelled and uncontracted in a way that's undemanding and undefended and get to see the way our compulsions and contractions fix the sense of self fix the obsession with objects and we get to taste the way that the softening of those contractions and compulsions open everything up and maybe say more about some of that as the days go by but I want to just sow the seed right now of where there is tension to bring inquiry to bring investigation and so as we said what that means is bringing presence and then feeling into and finding out about how come I'm tight around this. Sometimes just feeling the fact that I'm tight around my experience is enough for it to soften and other times it's not enough. Other times I'm tight and do I need to be so tight? Yes! Okay, and then you stay, you stay with the tightness. How about if I was to soften 2%, Mm -hmm, maybe 2%, oh, Oh, 2% of ease. So it's important that one's not demanding around that process, but you're tracking it, inquiring into it, that quality of open-ended inquiry, an inquiry without agenda, feeling into and finding out about. So, stay tuned friends, you don't need to go looking for some special experience, some spiritual experience, some cosmic experience. You know. the, the stuff of body and heart and mind and world, the stuff that's impinging on consciousness moment by moment, that's a good enough experience. That is the raw material of your life and of your practice. So we stay tuned and we feel into and we follow along with and we stay curious about and inquire into and we see clearly what's happening. So that we can relax in the middle of it all so that we can hold it more lightly and tenderly so we can know life and our relationship to life and our freeness of inhabiting life as clearly as a hand, as we know our hand on the end of our arm as clearly as colour to a person with good eyesight this is the promise and the real possibility of our practice here together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit org slash donate.